Hi everyone, you're listening to In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Now, you might be wondering why Peter isn't doing the intro. Well, that's because today is a special episode where I, Dan Mahoney, and Peter sat down to break down one of the most important industries, especially in the complicated world that we see today, farming. Over the past few months, we've looked at a number of different aspects of the agricultural problem set, from at-home gardening to some of the most high-tech solutions that we've ever seen. And on today's show, Peter and I dive into the issues of a centralized food supply chain, opportunities to localize where we get our groceries, the true cost of the food that we eat, and what we're looking forward to in the coming months and years in farming. We had a ton of fun with this episode, and we're so excited to share it with you. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this special episode of In Good Hands. Dan, welcome back to the show. And if you can, give our listeners just a a quick rundown on what today's show is all about. Yeah, Peter, thanks for the introduction. I think we've run... I believe it's four episodes in a row that have been sort of centered on different parts of our our farming system. And especially considering the impacts of COVID-19 on our food supply system, we thought it'd be really important to do sort of a roundup on how some of these sustainable agriculture moves play into fixing problems that have always been there and have just been exacerbated by this virus and this pandemic and sort of talking about where to go from here and where some good investment or good projects are set up. Yeah, I I think just at a high level, if you aren't investigating or exploring all things farming right now, you know, COVID aside, it is one of the most underexplored categories of interest in the climate community, but just in industry at large. We look at all of the different amazing founders and companies we've had on the show from Square Roots to Bowery Farming. I mean, these are crazy moonshot projects, companies that have raised tens of millions, sometimes over a hundred million dollars to completely change the way we produce food and then bring it to the masses. And I think we should talk about some of the more interesting nuggets and ideas from those episodes and things that we've seen in the media surrounding this narrative. The first of which, I want to start with this notion of scaled local, right? Like today, the vast majority of the poultry that American citizens get comes from a select few of institutional factory farms, right? The Tysons of the world. And the problem with this is they're breeding grounds for pandemics, right? They're single species, they're enclosed spaces, they're dark, they're damp, they're, you know, filled with fecal matter and the single species are eating food on top of it. I mean, these are just, these are environments that are not resilient. And I think the reason why local farming is so interesting is because it's the exact opposite of that, right? We have animals that live and graze in the fields. We have more people that can be employed to care for the food. And then we also decrease the distance 
required from production to the end consumer, whether it's the retailer or someone's home, by maybe a factor of a hundred or a thousand. So there's all these different benefits. But Dan, what do you think of all the episodes when we talk about this notion of of institutional factory versus local? What's the most interesting tidbit that comes to mind? I think there's the obvious, and we saw it with Square Roots and Bowery, where you know not necessarily meat production, but the fact that you can bring produce production straight into cities, things can be delivered on bicycles, they get to their local markets, they're able to cut some degree of cost through that. All of those things are super beneficial. And also when we talk about the Tysons of the world, these large scale meat providers, they aren't the farmers. And there's a lot of problems with that level of distribution, not only with the way that they demand that farmers process meat and at scale, but also farmers aren't necessarily getting the best end of the deal. And all of these problems that exist are are based on this idea that it's more efficient to have these large scale operations that theoretically are able to cut costs. But what we're seeing today is that everything's done to be just in time and to make the maximum amount of profit, but it doesn't benefit anyone except for these businesses. And these large scale ag businesses aren't necessarily doing anything good for our health, for our environment. It's just about making money while there might be a lot of better market solutions. Mm -hmm. What I think is really maybe one of the more uh, neglected parts of the conversation is yes, ideally it would be better to have you know a hundred thousand small farms that serve local communities. But when you talk about the end consumer and the end consumer wanting the most convenient and the cheapest, it's really hard to do it when you're not operating at Tyson scale. And Rogan had a super interesting guest on his pod this past week, founder of Polyface Farms, and he introduced what I thought was a compelling counterargument to that notion, which was twofold. One, the 99-cent burger is not properly priced today. Right? That was the underlying notion, and that if we had farms that were local and were designed to support the local community instead of shipping from the factories thousands of miles away, we'd have higher quality meats that are more nutritious, a much lower footprint, right? And using a food production system that actively benefits the planet. But more broadly, when you talk about some of the scale deficiencies from a cost perspective, he brought up this notion of workers' comp, right? One of the costs to the employer. Workers' comp, the cost to to pay for this as an employer gets higher and higher if the risk to your employees, to your workers, is higher. When you look at a typical factory farm, right? these, as discussed before, are these dark enclosed spaces. The workers are breathing in fecal particulate matter. They have all this super dangerous equipment on, on site versus the local farm that has virtually none of that. Right. The danger to to these local farmers are, you know, taking a walk into the field and and pushing the chickens into one direction or the other. So I don't know, what would you say in your mind 
are the biggest hurdles to kind of transitioning to scaled local and I mean, is this the future that we're looking at? Are, what are some of the concepts that you think where we could hit on price competition, low costs, and local? I think in terms of, of price competition, one of the more important things is when you talk local, I mean, we don't have to be thinking about having a series of chicken farms 20 miles outside of New York City to, to feed 8 million people. But having things within states is super important. You think about almost everywhere has a ton of arable land that probably isn't being used or these or feed crop farms that take up a ton of space to grow soybeans and corn that could be used for animal production to meet that demand in a much more humane way. In that podcast with Joe Rogan, Saladin brings up that Iowa, which I've always thought of it as a farming place, imports something like 90% of its food into the state. So you have these agricultural abilities in almost all 50 states, but they aren't necessarily being you know, incentivized to farm that way because singular large companies monopolize and distribute meat based on how they think that it should work for maximal profit. Not that that's a bad thing, but that there's a bunch of other market opportunities bringing jobs to people, bringing income to different areas and allowing development to occur. It's not dependent on subsidies for feed corn. Rather, it's growing its own meat and being able to develop a brand to develop some competition in the market. There's a ton of opportunity there. But I also think the most important thing is, like you said, the 99 cent burger isn't a fair price. And so Salatin brings up a really good example that, you know, 40 years ago, we spent 18% of our income on food and 9% of our income on healthcare. Today, it's the exact opposite. 9% of our our income on food and 18% on healthcare. And I think that that makes sense, right? On the top of it is that eating good food makes us healthier. And especially when we consider the current climate, like vitamins and making sure that you're healthy is, is so important. And if we're relying on, you know, artificially enriched foods to sort of fill those gaps, we are not getting the same level of nutrition necessary to sustain ourselves and to sustain ourselves in a healthy, happy lifestyle. Wait, wait, that is so interesting. And you could speak to the same general decision making process within the context of climate. People are not going to buy the sustainable product that is 2x the price. That is not the key driver of purchasing decision making. It really does circle back to the core values, which is typically cheaper faster, more convenient. And it's why I get so excited about concepts like Bowery Farming, like Square Roots, like Imperfect Foods and Misfits Market, because it actually does check all the boxes, right? And this notion of scaled local, I know we interviewed Abby from Misfits Market, but in recent news this past week, Imperfect Foods, one of the other competitors that are repurposing food waste and turning it into online grocery they just raised $72 million. And I think collectively they raised over $100 million. But what they've been able to deliver on is those three checkboxes, right? So they have cheaper food, right, by repurposing wasted or surplus produce and then packaging it either into grocery subscription or all other types of grocery. Two, it's still convenient, right? Fast delivery shipped right to your door. 
but it also hits on this values-based, you know, mission-oriented organization, right? And that to me feels like the winning ticket. When I talk to founders that are exploring ideas and they say, hey, there's so much waste in this area or someone needs to create the sustainable alternative to this. Well, yes, I mean, that would be great. But if you, if you can't deliver on a cheaper, higher quality, more convenient product, consumers are not going to buy into it. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's important to note, like, especially these companies who who have found the easy way to do this, you know, using what was considered waste product, which isn't waste product, to produce a cheap enough product that is able to compete in the marketplace is really important. But I also think that we'd be remiss if we're not noting that there are already cheaper, healthier al- alternatives, particularly for produce. And there's a lot of options that exist in the marketplace now. It'd be interesting to see how those are able to scale or if they need to scale, or is it mainly developing marketplaces and search engines and ways of people to access that if they aren't necessarily keeping their ear to the ground. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I just to, just to come full circle on the initial opener here, which is Bowery and Square Roots. So they're not necessarily delivering a cheaper product, but if you've tried any of their produce, there is a massive delta in flavor and nutrition. I think we talked to Jeremy from Avalo. He talks about uh, this notion of the you know broccoli. Within a mere twenty-four hour hour period, you're losing virtually all the flavor profile. And when you look at where we get our lettuce, right? I think it was ninety percent or over ninety percent of the lettuce that gets distributed throughout the entire United States comes from southwestern United States, which means that you know most of the lettuce we're getting here in New York or Massachusetts is getting shipped thousands of miles. And how, I mean, how can you possibly keep it fresh? Pesticides, chemicals, you're wasting all of this gasoline and energy on transportation. So sure, they can't check the box on price, but they certainly are meeting price, right? They're keeping that flat, but they are 10Xing on both of the other things which is convenience to the retailer. They're getting the product that they want and need much faster. And man, the nutrition and deliciousness factor is like 10 to 100x greater. So that's how I'll, I think we'll see companies like Bowery and Square Roots you know, thrive now and I, I hope usurp the institutional model at scale. What about, do you think farming like, polyface and what we saw in in the rogan episode is that something that other farms are going to adopt i mean what was most interesting to you there and what do you think the future of of regenerative farming is exactly well i think regenerative farming is going to rely on the ability to compete with subsidized farming and i think the way to solve that problem is through things like nori where people are paying to put carbon into soil, people are paying for regenerative projects. Same with carbon neutral, where if there's an economy that subsidizes farmers to say, hey, why don't you think about breaking away from the t- traditional Tyson chains, supply chain system? Instead, let's think about, you know, you're going to get this level of money to, to transition your farm. It's going to cover the capital change for, you know, third, fourth generational farmers who may not necessarily have the cash on hand. 
and then they get a lot more ownership. So being able to bridge that path with some sort of financial incentive to make that decision. And then once it happens, again, there needs to be some level of education to the consumer, some level of, you know, example. And Salatin brings up that there are, you know, general stumbling blocks in terms of how our meat system is regulated. And so there needs to be a lot more ways to look at how, you know, sustainable products are messaged because they do cut across the grain of what we've expected for agriculture for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years Mm -hmm. from most farmers. Mm -hmm. Dan, I want to keep this episode tight. So if we had to summarize uh, major takeaways or key takeaways from the last few episodes, the kind of state of affairs in the farming industry, food chain, you know, give me a biggest concern and maybe something that COVID accelerated or spotlighted to the most interesting takeaway from the last few episodes. And then three, what are you most excited for? You know, what looks like the most promising foot forward in making the food chain and farming more resilient and pandemic proof? Yeah, I I think to the, the first point, Obviously, the most alarming thing is that we're seeing some breakdowns in our supply chains. The quickest way to transition to this would be these sort of more nimble, more agile loops, things like Bowery, things like square roots. But there is that cost threshold at a time where people don't necessarily have more money. But I think that that also leads into what I feel hopeful about is A, it's easier than ever to grow food on your own, in your home, even if you're in an apartment. You know, we grow tomatoes here and things like Avalo offer great alternatives that, you know, might have some upfront costs, but also kind of guide you through and help you develop your green thumb. And once you get that basis, you can start to sort of experiment and branch out and work on it. And that's really, really exciting to me. I think also people are making considerations and maybe they're forced to, you know, they might be used to buying frozen food or, you know, processed meat. And they're being exposed to different decision-making, you know, through what's obviously a negative situation, but perhaps that can carry over. But overall, what I'm excited for is the growth of things like Bowery and Square Roots. I'm a big lover of tomatoes. I grew up, you know, my whole life, we grew them in the backyard. We'd have a little plot of land and they're so much better because a lot of tomatoes, unless they're directly in season get ripened through ethylene bags. And so there's really no flavor. They get kind of mealy. They're not really exciting. If you're trying to get around that, go with cherry tomatoes. But if we can have short crop cycles where things are almost always in season and they're available more often, they're local, and we can bring some you know green space back into our cities where people can sort of enjoy and know, you know, this is like the Providence Bowery, the New York City Bowery, wherever it is. That's really exciting for people. And also, even though these are, you know, super high tech, super automation forward, they're also like, as Square Roots noted, very much based on people. And I think that that's really important is that we still need to have a clear connection to where our food comes from and the people who make our food. And we've lost that, you know, over the last few decades. We don't know. There isn't a face to the food at all anymore because it's just these large companies with brands and names and we don't have any connection to that sort of farming 
And so we don't necessarily understand the various steps and what we could do to fix our problems. And it also allows us to make decisions where we might pay more for something because it's going to save us money in the long run. Mm -hmm. I definitely echo everything you said. If I had to plant my flag on the debate of local versus uh, institutional, I would put all my chips into local. I think that the pressure of the climate conversation was already budding. And what we saw with COVID and its impacts on the chain, on the, the entire supply chain, I think that was kind of the cherry on top. And as we saw companies like Square Roots and Bowery step up during this time and be able to fulfill, uh, rapidly ramp up the type of produce that these local grocers want. Uh, if you listen to the episode, you can hear Whole Foods was dealing with a massive arugula shortage, as was other very large grocers. And farms who plan these crop cycles month in advance or weeks in advance just, quite frankly, couldn't pivot fast enough to support that problem. So they looked to companies like Bowery and Square Roots to accommodate, and they were able to do so. So I think the notion of local becoming the norm, I think, is going to become ever more clear. And the second and third order effects of that will be more and more people participating in the process of food production, right? We see education and healthcare as the biggest employers in the United States, I believe. Uh, I believe that food production is going to quickly climb the ranks. I don't know what like the top 20 industries are, but if food production isn't top five, I am, I would not be surprised if it does quickly become. Two, to your point, I think we'll see it not just because local becomes the status quo, but it's because we're going to want to build si systems that are more resilient and less vulnerable to some of these existential threats that are certainly not going to stop coming down the pike. And the third is just a more broad takeaway. If you're a founder or a, a tinkerer looking to join a company or looking to start something, just look at farming. I mean, there is so much opportunity at every layer of the chain right? Starting with the source of production, the technology that supports that process, the connective tissue, right? The distribution, the fulfillment. I wouldn't say look so much at the, the sexy, you know, white labeling of a, a really nice cracker or, you know, these like single skews, like zoom out and really spend time investigating the supply chain. Look at all the different ways that food is produced today and you'll see that geez it just has not changed in decades so if you're looking for an opportunity to spend some time learning start there and just be surprised by how much opportunity is because what you might find is either a you know the next 10 or 15 years of your life you know working on a project of your own or joining a company that's solving and working on one of these you know one of many moonshot projects that are currently in in progress. So that's my takeaway. Dan, you have any final notes before we before we send off? 
I just want to put you on the hot seat once just before we leave here in, you know, 45 seconds or less. What is one thing that you would like that you've seen that you'd like to see iterated upon? What is one gap that you've seen in the past four weeks in your roundup looking at farming that you'd like to see at least explored? So I think one of the companies or at least areas that have excited me most over the last two years is animal free alternatives. Right. It starts with this fundamental understanding that most of the time traditional agricultural processes and this notion of clearing fields of land, you know, raising livestock, and then looking at the math of caloric input, like the amount we feed chickens, cows, and caloric output, how much we actually get out of them and transform into editable goods, it's a super disproportionate ratio. I mean, it's like one of the more inefficient systems. So the promise of impossible or beyond meats or anyone else that's tinkering in this area is not just delicious, but it's solving that core inefficiency. What I'd love to see, and I think what's been really neglected, is regenerative. When you look at and listen to what Polyface Farming, Polyface Farms has done, if you listen to that Rogan episode, and then you just start studying this notion of regenerative, you can actually listen to Nori's episode too, who also, he, Paul does a, an awesome deep dive on that concept. I believe that there is a ton of opportunity to repackage that notion and deliver it in a way that resonates with your average customer, right? And just look at what Impossible has done, Eclipse Foods, and just recycle that playbook. I think there's a lot to be done and that has been under, like grossly underexploited, starting with this notion of regenerative. And then how do you bring that repackage it into different products or services and introduce it in a scaled way. So that's where I would spend more time. And again, just to reiterate, it is one of the more fascinating corners of climate, sustainability, agriculture, and so much more needs to be done there. Absolutely. I love that. The only thing that I would say is we need to create some sort of labeling system where you can pull up your phone in a grocery store and understand where things come from. And I think that that will, you know, we need to be able to cut through the BS that exists in labeling, creating a way that understands where does your food come from and who's the person who's producing it. I think we'll bridge a lot of those gaps that we talk about in terms of purchasing decisions and make people feel a lot more comfortable with what they're buying as long as you make it seamless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely agree with you, Dan. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to hearing the episode in a couple of days. Awesome. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.